It is pretty incredible that Christ followers are not the only ones who talk about faith. We're not. We're not the only ones taking leaps of faith because I want you to know that everything you do in this life is, a, is, a, is an act of faith. What you've put your trust in comes out in your life, whether it's science or technology or trust you trust a car or you trust a kid. I mean, everything we're doing really points to what we believe. And so our culture talks a lot about faith. There's views of faith. What is it? What role should it play? How much should you actually have? And the culture makes these, you know, cute memes that are for posting. Like you can either, if you have enough faith, you'll share this pay, this, this post. If you, if you really have faith, you'll like this post. And um, we respond, oh goodness, do, do I have that kind of faith? And then, you know, we've got these Jesus memes that are out there now. Um, Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. Then share that Facebook post that I want you to share. I mean, and so we begin to go, how much faith is enough faith? And what do I have faith in? And what is my faith about? And where does it, where does it stand? And what, how, am I, how am I, am I having enough faith? What am I doing with all of this? And so not wanting to talk about all of the different views that culture has on faith or beliefs or trust. I'd really just rather go, what does the scripture say? What does the Bible teach about um, biblical faith? When a Christ follower says, I have faith, what are they saying? What are they declaring? What are they announcing uh, to the world? And so I, I kind of wanted, would just rather do what, you know, those good antique roadshow people do or those who are really good at, at spotting counterfeit 20s. You don't, they don't study all the different $20 bills that are, could be out there that are counterfeit. What they do is they study the real one. So that they know the real $20 bill inside and out. And so there's no questions. When they see a counterfeit, they're like, oh yeah, that's not a real $20 bill. And so from the Christ followers perspective, and I told you last week, you know, this week, last week we spent time looking at the validity of the text. Can we trust the words that are housed in the text? Everything rises and falls with the word of God. We believe the word of God uh, to introduce us to a new way of life. And that is a life of faith. So firstly, faith is very simply two words, believing God. I know you're probably looking for something deeper, wider, a more complex explanation, but faith simply is believing God. And the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks multiple times of faith. In Hebrews chapter 4, he speaks of the warning of having no faith. He says, God's promise of entering his rest. And now all of these things are based on God's promises. And we'll talk about that in a minute. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. But faith, we understand, by faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. The faith that we are speaking of is not hoping for something that is not true. And I want you to know that I have heard people say the definition of faith is believing something you know that is not true. 
Again, I'm sitting here going, this is where people are building their lives. They're building something on something that they think they know is not true, but they're believing for it and they're hoping and they're wishing and they're dreaming. And I don't understand that. And that's not what a Christ follower does. It's not what a Christ follower believes. We're not believing in something that we know is false. There are two words that are used in Hebrews. And it's faith and confidence. Typically, you don't hear those words together because faith is like this unsure, I don't know, I'm kind of out here. But the biblical definition being faith is the confidence that we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So we do we do understand that belief in God is key to believing God. Okay, you're not going to this is the writer in Hebrews going. This is common sense. You're not going to believe God if you don't believe he exists. Okay, so that is a step. There is an element to being a Christ follower that says, I do believe that God exists. I do believe that. But what else do we see biblical faith being described as, what is our faith in? Is our faith in our faith? And I think that might be where we get confused sometimes as Christ followers, is we think somehow we can well up enough faith where we finally have enough faith. We have our faith in our faith, and so my faith is strong, but what is your faith in? My faith is in my faith. Does that even make sense? Is that what God's asking of you, to have really, 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 really ridiculously strong faith? Like you have to get a lot of faith. How much do you fit? How much is a lot of faith? I don't know. See, this is where we get confused and we just go, we just got to have faith. We just throw it out the window and we don't actually look at what does the scripture say? How much faith is enough faith? Do I just got to have faith? Believe. What am I believing? My dreams, my wants, my blessings. What am I, what am I supposed to be doing? We use such vague terms. We don't really help anybody by just throwing that out there. We, well, you just better believe, sister. Believe what? For the Christ follower, our, the question of faith has never been about how much, but where is the object of our faith? This is the difference. The strength, the, 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 the object of our faith has always, always been the issue in the Scriptures. And it's not just a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, starting with Adam and Eve, God invites them to believe Him, Right? says, look, you can have any fruit in the garden that you want. You can do, you do what you want. Just stay away from this tree. Don't eat this fruit, because if you do, you'll surely die. It's an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to believe him, to have relationship with him, to just trust him. And what did they do? They leaned on their own understanding. And guys, this is going to be the battle. As long as we have flesh on our, on our bodies, the temptation will be to lean on our own understanding and not believe God. Noah believed God, but it wasn't just a head knowledge because Noah could have gone, God, I believe you'll save me. But did God give him instructions? He did, right? So if Noah just stood around and was like, God, I believe you saved me, but Noah, I'm speaking to you. I'm telling you, here's the way out. Build this boat, get on it, and the rescue will be provided. If Noah had just stood around, I believe you're going to save me. I believe you're going to save me. But he didn't act on God speaking to him Would that have actually been faith? I don't think it would have. I think it would have been a guy just standing around talking. But Noah believed God and was rescued. Abraham believed God 
And we see God getting a little more specific about the role of faith in a believer's life with Abraham because it says when Abraham believed God, he was counted as righteous before God. You and I both know Abraham, if, you, if you've read any of the scriptures, Abraham wasn't always a good dude. <laughs> he was not always a very good man. But it, it doesn't say Abraham's perfect faith was counted to him as righteous. It was that Abraham believed God and it was counting him as righteous before God. It was not works in the Old Testament. It was still an invitation to faith. When he and Sarah were too old to have kids, Abraham believed God. When God said, Abraham, I want you to give me Isaac, your one son who you believed me for, Abraham believed God. Moses and Israel believed God. They heard God's promise. I will rescue you. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will give you a promised land. All of this is built on God's promises. They saw God's power and as a result, they moved when God said to. What they believed, what Israel believed about their future was directly tied to the things God had done before in the past. They said that they saw that if God will do this, then I know he'll do these things. I know he'll care for me now because he's cared for us in the past. Belief does not come blindly. Think about it. How many of you in this room have had a direct contact with a used car salesman? Anybody? There's a couple of you that have had direct contact with a used car salesman. But when I said used car salesman... Something came into your brain, didn't it? What was that? A deep trust for, right? No. Disbelief. Distrust. Belief does not come blindly. Why? Because you've gathered a, a section of facts, whether or not you have actually dealt with a used car salesman. You have some type of a knowledge, whether it was you went online or you saw a movie or you saw something that would cause you to go, no, I don't trust used car salesmen. You have gathered the information and your belief has caused you to act on that belief in distrust for used car salesmen. And I'm sorry if you are a used car salesman and you're here today. I'm just saying the persona's out there. <laughs> when God asks the 12 spies to go out and check out the land that he had already promised them, God, when he said, go, go check, go look, go see what you want, he wasn't saying, here's an option. If you want it, take it. If you don't, no. He was saying, this is the promised land, but I'm going to entertain you. You're afraid. Go look. Well, those 12 spies go into the land. They look, and 10 of them come back and go, dude, there's giants in the land. Let's not take this land. This is too much. Let's get out of here. Two of the spies of those 12 said, dude, there are giants in the land, but God is so much bigger. Let's go get this land. See, these guys did not have their heads in the sand. They were not unaware of the reality surrounding them. They just had a deep trust that God, because of his promises before, was going to answer his promises for today. So where they went and what they walked in was because they had reason to trust. It's interesting. I took up running several years ago, and I read this book called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. I don't know if that's how you say his name, but it's fun to say it that way. But he, he gives this, this perspective on running, and he says this about running. He says, Running unites our two most primal impulses, fear and pleasure. 
We run when we're scared, we run when we're ecstatic, we run away from our problems and run around for a good time. And when things look worst, we run the most. Three times America has seen distance running skyrocket, and it's always in the midst of national crisis. The first boom came during the Great Depression, when more than 200 runners set the trend by racing 40 miles a day across the country in the Great American Foot Race. Running then went dormant only to catch fire again in the early 70s when we were struggling to recover from Vietnam, the Cold War, race riots, a criminal president, and the murders of three beloved leaders. And the third long-distance boom, one year after the September 11th attacks, trail running suddenly became the fastest-growing outdoor sport in the country. Maybe it was coincidence, or maybe there's a trigger in the human psyche coded response that activates our first and greatest survival skill when we sense the raptors approaching. See, we're not people who put our head in the sands, okay? We understand that trouble and chaos abound. And so some people run to escape it. Some people do things and they're going, well, you know, for me, when I run, I'm, I typically see it as a time to pray, as a time to memorize scripture, But we all have this trust somewhere, and and when we see things and circumstances that begin to fall, collapse, um, and not go the way we think everything should be, what do we do? We panic, we get anxious, we get worrisome, we get fearful, we get full of doubt. You know, and for some people, we we just run. We run from those things. But God is bigger than the things that we see. God is bigger than the circumstances, and that's what Scripture paints a picture of. Not a bunch of people who walk around not knowing anything, but people who are very well informed about what's going on in society, but have a trust that because of God's promises and His faithfulness, we can trust Him for today. Belief is not a New Testament concept alone. Faith is what God has asked of His people since the beginning of His involvement with humanity. God is described in the scriptures as a father. And for those of you that are in this room that have a very hard time with that description, uh, maybe because you had a father who was not trustworthy. Maybe you had a father that was abusive. Maybe you had a father that was not present. Maybe you had a father who gave you no reason to trust him or a father who broke promises all the time. Maybe you've experienced that. And for that, my heart breaks. Because I will tell you this, I am not a perfect father. I am not the model Christ follower citizen. I am not that guy. But one of my biggest prayers and my biggest desires for my children today is that my kids would believe me. What I mean by that is when my kid as a five-year-old wants to run out into the street, I want them to believe me when I say, you could get hit by a car. I want my five-year-old to believe me that when you run out and, and do these things that could bring you pain, I want them to believe me that I know that cars are real and that they could hit you and they could destroy you. I don't just want them to believe me when they're little, though. I want them to believe me when they hit the teenage world and they just when they make mistakes and then they, they feel awful and shameful and they can't come before their father. I want them to know, guys, you could make the biggest mistake in the world, but I will always love you. Do you know that's really hard for teenagers to believe? Do you know that? Do you know that, 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 that it's hard for a teenager not to think of themselves as a failure when they fail? I want my kids to believe me when I say to them, just because you failed doesn't mean you're a failure. 
And I can't help but think that this is the heart of the Father, the Father, who longs for His kids to believe Him. This is the Scripture story that we are invited into. It's belief. It's trust that God is who He says He is. And as a result, we are who He says we are. This is where a Christ follower stands when it comes to matters of faith. Believers are called believers simply because we believe Him. We believe He is who He says. We believe we are who He says we are. We believe His Word. And as the New Testament picture comes into clarity, we believe that Jesus was sent by God to bring us back into that relationship we've been longing for. But we've been trying to fill it in other places. Jesus is saying, believe me. This is the way to life. What does a Christ follower believe? Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus, his announcement. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Mark 16, 15, and then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. As Christ followers, we love to jump on the train of pointing out all these awful, outer, terrible sins that people might find themselves in, but yet we don't speak up uh, against unbelief. Jesus said that is the worst thing. Unbelief is the most deadly thing anyone could give themselves to, specifically when it comes to God and who he is and his promises. Unbelief is more deadly than any outer sin we might throw ourselves to. But we don't hear Christ followers talking about unbelief very often. The scriptures paint a very dangerous picture for living a life of unbelief. Jesus, in one of his clearest descriptions of what he, what God demands and desires of his people, in John 6, 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. In Luke chapter 1, verse 45, Elizabeth is saying of Mary, who has just found out, hey, I'm going to be Jesus' mother. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. In one of my favorite encounters of Jesus with his disciples, it's after he's already been crucified and he's raised from the dead and there's two of his disciples walking on this road and they're kind of down and they're sad and they're talking to each other and they're kind of, man, I don't even know what we saw. And Jesus, without them recognizing him, walks up next to him and says, what are you guys talking about? And I love how the disciples are like, are you kidding me? There's only one thing anyone in our town is talking about. And it's this guy, Jesus, who is an amazing teacher. He's super powerful. He did all these things of God. And, and the religious leaders hated him. And so they killed him. And this was three days ago. We had hoped he was the Messiah, but he's dead now. You don't know what we're talking about? And I love Jesus. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I love that about Jesus and how he did that with them. And so they, they keep trying to explain it to him. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 24 says this to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Jesus is saying, God's already made this promise. He said it was going to happen. And it did happen. 
Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying, all of the scriptures point to me. You have a hard time believing the prophets, then I don't think you might, you're not going to believe me. He says that multiple times to the Pharisees. And housed within the good news is an announcement. Repent. Repentance is typically described as this idea where I, I'm walking one way and I'm being all this, doing all this bad stuff. And if I repent, I start doing all this good stuff. At its root, repentance is a change of mind. Changing the way you think about God and changing the way you think about yourself. Jesus came to shatter those thoughts that we have about God and about ourselves that are incorrect. And the way a new life is formed is not through like me getting really good at trying to be obedient, but it's the way I've thought about God and the way I've thought about myself that Jesus came to introduce me to a new life. That your works don't make you more acceptable to God. Do you know that? That your sin can't keep you separated from God because of what Christ has done. Your sin, it will be dealt with, yes, but not by sweeping it under the rug because Jesus is going to take on the sin on himself and die in our place so that we might live, not just eternally, but have real life here and now. Ephesians chapter 2 describes those days when you were walking in unbelief. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises there. Those promises, again, God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ the distinct difference between a Christ follower's faith in Christ and the faith that the rest of the world may boast is that when a Christ follower or when a person puts their trust in Christ, they have been made right with God. They have been made new. There is no, no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They have been made whole. They have been made alive according to the Scripture. This is where Jesus changes the game. Everything hinges on him, the object of our faith, not the amount of faith that I can work up. He is who we believe. We're not simply talking about believing religious facts. There are some of you in here that you're so smart, you're, you're, too, you're too smart for your own good You've got all these religious knowledge checkpoints in your brain. You've got the gospel facts lined up. You know, you think that Jesus did live and you think that Jesus did do some good stuff. You think that Jesus did some great stuff and you believe that God exists. And there you go. You've got your gospel facts. But in James chapter 2, listen to this. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? We just spent five weeks, six weeks in the book of James, so I'm not going to go over this completely, but in the reality of what James is saying here is, you say you have faith, but the way you live shows that you have faith in something else. 
The way you act, the way you interact, the way you relate to people, the way you, you get really uh, ugly to people and you hate people and you're just angry and you're bitter and all this different stuff. But yeah, I have faith in Jesus. You speak a game, but your life shows something differently. We spent those weeks in James, and James really got around to our faith is an all-of-me faith, not just an intellectual knowledge. Now, an all-of-me faith doesn't, doesn't free you from struggle or unbelief. You may, you're going to wrestle with it your whole life. But as Elizabeth Elliot said this, faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. This is all about the object of our faith, friends. Because you and I, in our humanity, our sinfulness, we can even make a work out of faith. Did you know that? Did you know that we can approach God by going, God, I have had so much faith, now you owe me. God does not owe anyone a thing. He is not your personal Santa Claus. He is not a vending machine. He does not need our works. And we, as broken people, can even make faith a work. God, look, I've got all this faith. Now give me what I want. That is a very dangerous ground to stand on. Christ follower, believing biblical faith, says, Jesus, I see what you've done. Thank you. That's where I have to live my life. I want to live my life on what you have accomplished. I want it to be all of me. This is a chair. And um, I really trust this chair. I really do. I, uh, I like to stand next to the chair. Um, I like to, every once in a while, touch the chair. I, um, I even carry this chair around with me sometimes. Um, Every once in a while, I put a couple dollar bills on the chair. Um, I sing about the chair. I uh, dance around the chair. It's a really cool chair. I have trust in this chair. Have I expressed to you my trust in this chair? Let me tell you about my chair. It's a great chair. I love this chair. And this is what we do to Jesus. This is what we do. Talk about it, maybe look at it every once in a while and say I have trust in it, but have I actually expressed any trust in this chair until I sit in this chair? I've just talked a good game. I have really got you convinced that I trust this chair, but I've never sat in the chair. You know the beautiful thing about sitting in a chair is that you get to rest. <laughs> See, you could say you have trust in Jesus, but... See, you put your full weight, that's what faith is, put your full weight into it, it's just talk. You might have a belief, you may know gospel facts in your head, but you never sat down in the chair. You got the game, you got the lingo, you got the language, you've got the time carved out on Sunday, and you do that, but you never sat in the chair. You never put your full weight there. That's what biblical faith is. Biblical faith says, you know what? I put my full weight. Everything, all of me, Jesus, it's yours. Saving faith is a faith that rests fully on what Jesus 
has done. Saving faith is not just knowing that I'm a sinner. Saving faith is not just believing that God exists. Saving faith is not just believing that Jesus did some cool things. Saving faith puts all of my chips in the same basket. It's an all of me. Jesus, I see what you've done, and I trust that it's better, greater, grander, wiser, stronger than anything else this world has to offer. John Newton said it this way, This is faith, a renouncing of everything we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. We are Christ followers. We are believers, not because we are workers. We believe that Jesus has done everything I need for life here, for eternal life, and for right standing with God. When I place my faith directly into uh, to, to sitting in this chair, when I place my faith there, why I'm placing it there is because it's all about the faithfulness of God. We talked about his promises. We talked about him delivering and rescuing. And there's a reason God told the Israelites to tell their children about his faithfulness. It's because we are forgetful people. He invites us to believe him. And uh, many speak of faith as if it has nothing to be grounded upon. I told you, please do not listen to culture's definition of faith. Believe in something that you know is not true. Um, I like to believe in science. I like to believe this. I mean, there's all these conversations. And is it testable? Is what you're saying you believe, is it testable? I believe that the Christian faith is testable. Paul actually describes the testability of Christianity in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. It's right there in the scripture. There is a testability to the faith of a Christ follower. If Christ has not been raised, then throw in the towel, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Remember that definition of biblical faith, Hebrews 11.1? Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Faith in Christ not only gives us assurance for the day-to-day, That He is all-powerful and He's able to hold and sustain us in a world that is constantly shifting, but He is able to safely guide us into eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not seeing. We walk by faith not sight. And I was talking with my wife about this a little bit this week in that I, I don't necessarily think as Christ followers we're to walk around like this. Because I might just walk off the stage right now and fall into your lap. <laughs> Is that how we're supposed to walk around with our eyes closed and kind of just do this thing? No, our eyes are open. We do live by sight. I don't believe that what Paul's saying here is shut your eyes and just believe. I actually think he is saying what we look at matters more than we even think. As Christ followers, as someone who says that Jesus is enough, I am actually to consider and look at Jesus. 
It says he is the author and perfecter of my faith. That's where I keep my eyes. So my, my faith, me sitting in the chair, the more I look at Jesus, the more I have reason to stay seated in the chair. See, when I come and gather with you guys on a Sunday and I hear of Christ's faithfulness in your life, I'm encouraged to stay put. When I walk with others at a coffee shop and I hear of the struggles that you're walking through, but there's a trust in the Lord, I am encouraged to stay put. And when we come together and we serve the city or we, we do, you know, we do elevate classes and I come and watch these teachers who are just so convinced that Jesus is enough, I am encouraged to stay put. So we do walk by what we see, very simply because I believe what we are always looking at determines where we put our faith. If you're always looking at your circumstances, then you probably are one who's on shaky ground. My wife described it this way. She was talking about a reading that she was looking at, and she says, we have lenses that we'll look through. And as a videographer, photographer type person, I love lenses. Lenses are like the bomb. Like, that's what you want. They're the glass that make everything look amazing. And so you want to protect those lenses. You want to keep them safe. You don't want to get dirt on them. You don't want them to get scratched. But you protect those lenses. She said that there's two lenses you can look through. You can look through the lens of your circumstances. And if that's what you're going to choose to look through, you're going to be knocked down nine times. No, ten times. Yeah, ten times out of ten. We're not even going to give you one circumstances are always shifting, always changing. But if you'll take the gospel lens and you'll look at Jesus, when you see those circumstances, you remember Jesus's faithfulness. He's strong enough to save. He's strong enough to carry. And so the anxiety and the worry and the doubt and the fear, they're there. You know they're there, but you know that Jesus is stronger. God is able to carry his people through this is the object of our faith. C.S. Lewis says it this way, Faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. I love that. Because there was probably a time for some of you in this room that you, you did the, the thinking and you saw Jesus' faithfulness and you saw God's provision and you saw Him take care of you and He saw Him take care of others and you've seen His power through the Word of God, but your emotions are all like this and going crazy. And so the faith that C.S. Lewis is talking about is I just stay put even though my moods are changing. Man, I so badly want to go somewhere else. I so badly want to be somewhere outside. But, but wait, my... Man, my brain won't let me go because I remember God's faithfulness. Staying put. This is where a Christ follower is meant to live. It doesn't, it does not, does not mean you will not have questions. You will not have doubts. You will not have struggles. You will, but you know where to take them, as Elizabeth Elliot said. We'll close this morning as the band comes. Living by faith and not by sight does not mean that I cast all reality to the side. I have a very good view of reality. It's just that my circumstances will not dictate where my faith remains. God is never changing. I can build a life on that. Because He is not changing, because He is all-knowing, because He is ever-present, because He is good, because He is slow to anger, because He is generous, because God is faithful, I can trust Him. Where do I see his plans, his promises? 
we look together in the Word of God. We're able to see, can I trust Him? Because He invites us to. Psalm 116 says this, Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save me. How kind the Lord is, how good He is, so merciful, this God of ours. The Lord protects those of childlike faith. I was facing, facing death, and he saved me. This morning, I don't know if you have just an intellectual belief, but you've never declared saving faith or putting your trust in Christ. My invitation to you would be to put down all the other things you hold so dearly to as life-giving and accept the gift, the gift of faith in Christ Jesus. I know for some of you, you're like, but I don't know if I have enough faith. Well, good thing Jesus said it's faith like a child. It's a good thing Jesus said it's mustard seed size. You see, for the Christ follower, it's never been about us working our way up to enough faith. It's always been about the object. And the object of our faith, Christ Jesus, he is good to hold. He's not going anywhere. He holds us securely. And the beautiful thing about being held by the promises of God is you get to rest. You get to rest. And I know that's what we all want. We're looking for it because we're so full of anxiety, worry, and doubt. Some of us run to deal with it. I know I do. (laughs) It's not a terrible thing to run, but... When I'm tempted to get up, I I have to go to the Word of God. When I'm tempted to wander, when I'm tempted to leave, when I'm tempted to go someplace else, I need to be reminded that God is faithful in the midst of my shifting emotions. So this morning, I don't know where you find yourself, but we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to give you the opportunity to just have somebody invest in you, pray for you, say, hey, where are you at? And some, there'll be some elders and some gel leaders and their wives standing over to the side that would love to pray for you, encourage you. They're not going to make you fill out any papers or anything like that. They would just simply love to pray for you. And if you're one who's like, I just got so many questions, man. I haven't gotten to that reason part of the intellectual brain, this conversation. And there's just too many gaps and I just, I can't see it yet. Then I'd love to invite you to conversation. I know it won't be a two, a two minute conversation, but that's why we're always inviting people to the table, coffee, meals together. Because those are where we can unpack the struggles, the doubts, the fears, the anxiety together. But all of it, Paul pointed everything to helping God's people live lives of faith in God. That's why we exist. So this morning, my invitation to you is to not delay. You're going to put your faith in something. You are. The question is why? Why? Why have you put your faith in whatever it is you're trusting? We can trust that there is a powerful God who has made powerful promises that he has kept and he showed it to us in Jesus. Lord, we love you and I just ask in these moments that as we consider your words to us, your promises to us to provide a rescuer, to provide a healer, to provide one who would bring us back into community and relationship with you, I pray that we would see that we can trust you. That God, you would take our anxious hearts and our our anxious minds, and and you would allow us to see that you are worthy of our trust. Lord, you're bigger than our questions, our doubts, and our fears. 
May we know where to take them as we just sit in the chair. It's in your name we pray.